there is something wrong with Doris. But we weren't really sure what. The British medical doctor shares a story about his interaction with Doris, an 82-year-old hospital patient. Two days before Christmas, Doris seemed healthy and ready for discharge, but for some reason she kept complaining about inexplicable health issues. He writes, yesterday it was her arm that was hurting. Before that, it was her hip. The truth is, Doris is an incredibly healthy 82-year-old, and we can't find anything wrong with her. I have no doubt that it'll be the same thing today. When another set of x-rays came back normal the following day, he told Doris that he would have to stick to the plan of sending her home. Doris looked down at the floor. The sorrow had turned to despair. It was two days before Christmas, and she was alone. There would be no one waiting at home for her. Quietly, she said, I don't want to go home. It's just that I'm all alone, and there are so many hours in the day. Doris's sickness was that she was friendless. We're going to look at the mission of the church from a series of interactions here recorded in the Acts of the Apostles as we ask what it means for the gospel to come to those who are friendless. This is Acts chapter 9. I'm beginning in the middle of verse 19. This is the word of our God. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues, that Jesus is the Son of God. He had just been persecuting Christians briefly before then. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled his fellow Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the city wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and brought him in the, and, and brought him to the the apostles, and he, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that's Jesus, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked about he, he talked and he debated with the, the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa. And, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. What mission do we see here? We see here a mission to be a friend to the friendless. That means a friend to all different kinds of people. That means being a friend to people who you may perceive as being physically threatening or scary. I mean, Paul, that is Saul's job, had been to jail Christians. He had been there when Stephen, a deacon, was stoned to death for his testimony of faith in Jesus. He had approved of it. He was a bad guy. And the Christians we read here were terrified of him. They didn't want to meet with him. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want anything to do with this guy. He was bad news. There are good reasons to believe it could have been a trap to catch the Christians. Paul's job was to do that. And now who are the people that you find physically threatening? For some of you, it might be the kind of Islamic extremist in Syria, but that's not too close to home. For some of you, it's big guys with, 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 with gold teeth. For others of you, it's the big white man with the Confederate flag in his pickup, uh, or the guy down the street who sells drugs. You know, who is it that you find threatening? And what will it look like to be a friend to them? For those early followers of Jesus, it meant three things. It meant identifying with the person you fear. They even became Saul's followers as they began to trust God's work in and through him. Uh, it meant offering physical assistance when needed, uh, when there were needs. They, these Christians lowered Saul down in a basket to help him escape from his enemies. It meant advocating for the person that you had feared. Looking at the lengths to which Barnabas goes to help Saul is, is crazy. He's trying to break Saul into the community of the Christian leaders. He takes him under his wing. He leverages his own relational capital. He greases the wheels. He argues for his former enemy, advocating for him as a repentant man. He works endlessly to make sure that Saul gets into the heart of the Christian community, to make sure that he's accepted, to dispel their fear and suspicion. He puts himself out there to love a man who seemed unlovable, to be a friend to a man who had been physically threatening to the Christians, to be a friend to the friendless. 
It also means being a friend to those who are physically dependent. Aeneas was paralyzed. He was bedridden for eight years. If you can imagine what that would be, you can imagine the bed sores getting rolled over however many hours so that your skin doesn't deteriorate, not being able to control your own bowel movements, having to be cleaned up uh, by other people, not able to clean yourself, not able to dress yourself, not able to feed yourself, being completely isolated and yet completely dependent on other people to do the things that you don't want anybody doing to you. And Peter hunts him down. He finds him, and he offers him what he, as an apostle, had the power to do, which is to heal him. And this can get very messy. It's, it's not for us. It's, it's not about always trying to cure whatever problem somebody has, because I'm not an apostle. I can pray for somebody, but I can't heal, heal them like that. But it's about the care itself. It's about the love and the compassion and the mutual knowing that go into caring for another human being who has physical dependence upon you. Uh, Henry Nouwen says what we see and what we like to see is cure and change. But what we do not see and do not want to see is care. The participation in the pain, the solidarity in the suffering, the sharing in the experience of brokenness, and still, cure without care is as dehumanizing as a gift given with a cold heart. We're challenged here by a vision, not just of, of curing, but of caring and all of its messiness, being a friend to the friendless. Um, who are the physically dependent in your orbit? You know, if you're of a certain age and a certain career trajectory and live in a certain kind of neighborhood, you may not have a whole lot. Um, certainly, there are people who become physically dependent because of advanced age or medical conditions. They become shut in. There are people who are physically dependent because they don't have a motor vehicle, and so they can't just show up at an appointment very easily. It takes hours on, on navigating the bus or walking. Um, we have people with physical disabilities and children. Children are, are completely dependent upon you. Uh, what does it mean? You know, for them to be a friend of the friendless meant being a friend to those who were physically threatening, like Paul, those who were physically needy, uh, and yet also a friend to those who are socially needy. Um, Tabitha, we see, or Dorcas, was at the center of an impoverished community of widows, and after her death, these widows stood around weeping and showing uh, all the things that, that had been done that she had done for them, the clothes she had made, the care she had done. You know, widows were desperately poor in the ancient world. There was no social safety net to catch people on their way down. Uh, a, a widow with, with no children there to take care of her and no husband to take care of her, she would be on her own. And there were two career paths that she could go on, and you could probably figure out what one of them was, and it wasn't good. And the other one was slavery. She could sell herself one way or another. And here Tabitha, or Dorcas, took note of them. She saw their need, and she worked tirelessly to provide for them. When Peter prays for her resuscitation and brings her back to life, it's not to reward her for her life of good deeds. That would be a misreading of the passage. He does it out of concern for the circle of widows because Peter understands where they will have to turn if this Christian woman isn't there to take care of them because they were dependent socially on love from others. Here we might think of 
those classes of people in the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, if you will, the, the protected class of, of the widow and the orphan and the migrant and the poor, these people who had special protections because they were the most marginalized and the most easily taken, taken advantage of because they didn't have a social uh, uh, safety net, uh, a family to protect them. Um, what will it look like for us as followers of Jesus to, to devote ourselves to being a friend to the friendless here in St. Louis, a friend to the refugee, a friend to the PhD down the hallway who is crippled by loneliness, a friend to those who are dependent on a welfare system that can't really get anyone free, a friend to the international student who has limited financial means and a student visa that allows them to have very little outside employment, a friend to the unwed mother facing an unexpected and unplanned pregnancy, a friend to the awkward guy who doesn't seem to have any friends and who isn't sure how to make any. Are you a friend of the socially needy? John Ortberg tells a story, really from the San Francisco Chronicle, about a bus driver named Linda. There was a front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a metro transit operator named Linda Wilson Allen. She loves the people who ride her bus. She learns their names and waits for them if they're late at the bus stop, and then she makes up the time later on her route. A woman in her 80s named Ivy had some heavy grocery bags and was struggling with them, so Linda got up out of her bus driver's seat, got up and helped her get the bags into the bus, and now Ivy lets other buses pass her by because she wants to be on Linda's bus. Linda saw a woman named Tanya in a bus shelter. She could tell Tanya was new to the area and she was lost. It was almost Thanksgiving. So Linda said to Tanya, you're out here all by yourself. You don't know anybody. Come over to my house on Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids. Now they're good friends. Linda has built such a little community of blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda the use of their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and floral bouquets. When people found out she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniform, they started giving them as presents to Linda. I mean, think about what a thankless task driving a bus can look like in our world. Cranky passengers, mask mandates, engine breakdowns, traffic jams, gum on the seats, people with weapons, and you ask yourself, how does she have this attitude? And according to the San Francisco Chronicle, it's this. Her mood is set at 2.30 a.m. every day when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes, the Chronicle states. There is a lot, of talk about, uh, there is a lot to talk about with the Lord, she says, a member of Glad Tidings Church in Hayward, California. When she gets to the end of her line, she always says, that's all, I love you all, take care. Have you ever had a bus driver tell you they love you? People wonder, where can you find the kingdom of God? I'll tell you where you can find it. It's on the number 45 bus riding through San Francisco. People wonder, where can I find the church? Where can I find Jesus? I'll tell you, it's behind the wheel of a metro transit vehicle, a friend to the friendless, right in her own daily circle network, a friend to the socially needy, but also one last category. Being a friend of the friendless also means being a friend to those who have been shunned. These are the people you may feel like would make you look bad if you associated 
your name with theirs. The people that nobody wants to befriend. In first century Judaism, this would have been the tanner. The tanner is the guy that takes dead animals, rips them open, takes all the insides out, scrapes the, the, the flesh off of the inside back of the skin, and tans it into leather. Under Mosaic law, touching a dead animal made you unclean. A tanner's house was a permanently unclean location. A tanner was a permanently unclean person. Perhaps the most shunned man in the city of Joppa would have been a tanner. And so where does Peter choose to base his ministry the whole time he's in Joppa. Peter stayed in Joppa, we read, for some time with a tanner named Simon. That's accepting hospitality from an unexpected source, from a man who is ritually unclean and therefore socially shunned. Who do a lot of religious people shun today? I think you can probably populate your own list. Uh, shunning is an act of social rejection, an emotional distance that's meant to inflict shame on the victim. It involves deliberately avoiding a person or a group of people, habitually avoiding them. It involves denying them the basic human solidarity for which they, as image bearers of God, were designed. A friend's husband recently inherited, a few years back, a double portion of his father's estate because the family had disinherited his other brother for being gay. I've seen people shunned for their theology, shunned for marrying a person with a different skin color, shunned for wearing Islamic hijab, shunned for not wearing Islamic hijab, shunned for struggling with sexual sins or pornography, shunned for one's political perspective, shunned for all sorts of reasons. Often in our society, we shun those who struggle with, with, with mental illnesses like schizophrenia. It's an incredibly destructive force to shun someone. It causes great mental, social, and, and psychological damage upon its victims. And notice that, that Peter doesn't fix Simon the Tanner to make him ceremonially clean. He's not interested in that. He's a believer. He's clean in God's eyes. But Peter stands in continued solidarity with Simon because he is staying in Simon the Tanner's house any follower of Jesus in that town who wants to consult the apostle has to go into the house of Simon the Tanner. The house of Simon has now become not on the periphery of the church, not on the periphery of the, the community of Christ, but in the very center. As Paul talks about how the gospel enables us to take those who are on the very edges of the church and bring them in to the middle as the most valued members that we give special love and care to. Imagine what that kind of solidarity would have felt like for a man who would have been shunned his entire adult life. I remember the days following the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Um, they've been coming to mind a lot recently. Air traffic had shut down completely. Some of you remember what it was like. Every airport was closed. Manhattan was smoldering. There was smoke rising for weeks out of the Pentagon. There was wreckage of a plane and its many victims in a field in Pennsylvania. There were so many loved ones lost, so many funerals, so many memorial services, so, many, so much wreckage and so many deaths, thousands and thousands. And in those first days after the attack, we were all shell-shocked. A civilization had come under fire, and the very foundations of civilization were being shaken. And in those first days, as we sat stunned, 
the U.S. Navy's newest guided missile destroyer, the USS Winston Churchill, sighted the Lutyens, which was a German warship while out at sea. And one of the Churchill's officers gave this account. He writes, as the Germans were making their approach, our coning officer announced that they were flying an American flag. And as they came even closer, we saw that it was flying at half-mast. The Lutyens came up alongside us, and we saw that the entire crew of the German warship were manning the rails in their dress blue uniforms. They had made a sign that was displayed on the side of the boat that said, we stand by you. Needless to say, there was not a dry eye on the bridge as they stayed alongside us for a few minutes and we cut our salutes. It was probably the most powerful thing I have seen in my entire life and more than a few of us fought to retain our composure. The German Navy did an incredible thing for this crew that day shortly after September 11th. They identified with those who were suffering. They stood in solidarity with those who were grieving. And that's what Peter did for Simon the Tanner, a man who had been shunned and shamed and avoided and rejected. He chose to base his ministry out of his home. It's the same thing we see Jesus doing when he chose to stay at the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, or at the house of Matthew, the tax collector. The Son of Man had no home except the homes of those who had been shunned by their community. The solidarity of Jesus who stands with the shamed and the shunned today. The heart of Jesus who hears the cries of the afflicted. Are you in solidarity with those who suffer in this region? Look around you. It's not difficult to find the communities in St. Louis that are suffering the most. They're, they're getting hit the hardest. What does it look like to live life as Christians in solidarity with them? That's what Peter was doing for Simon the Tanner. He had taken a man, pushed out beyond the edges of human affection and community, and brought him in to the very center of God's new community, the church. That's the common thread in all of these encounters. It's like a shotgun of encounters, being a friend to the friendless. This threatening man, Saul, is pulled from the edge into the middle of the Christian community because followers of Jesus were loving him when he was friendless. The physically disabled man, Aeneas, who was isolated in bed and dependent and humiliated for eight years, is pulled out of his dark hole and into the sunlight and into the life of the community of the Christians who loved him. They were being a friend of the friendless. These widows who would have ended up dying alone, enslaved, or working on the streets were pulled back into the community of love by Tabitha, who loved them. And then Simon the Tanner, the outcast, pulled into the heart of discipleship and Christian community, the family of, of, of God, because a follower of Jesus chose to stay with him long enough for it to have a permanent impact. A friend to the physically threatening, a friend to the physically dependent, a friend to the socially needy, a friend to those who had been shunned, a friend to the friendless. These early followers of Jesus, Barnabas, Tabitha, Peter, they were willing to pay a price to be a friend to the friendless. I imagine that Peter likely lost some respect from some sorts of religious people when he chose to stay in a ceremonially unclean house. 
I can imagine Barnabas probably got some people frustrated when he was actively trying to get this former enemy of God into the heart of the Christian community to meet with the Christian's greatest leaders. Um, Certainly he had to rearrange his schedule. He had to speak up with people of influence. Probably got people mad at him. We can only conjecture. Tabitha toiled for hours to make clothes for the women that she loved. Being a friend to the friendless can be costly. It can cost you dearly. It involves taking risks. People might not say thank you. People might not thank you for helping them. You know, your hard work might never receive praise. It's costly and it's often invisible. But it's also beautiful. So how is it possible? One reason they're not doing it, being a friend of the friendless, is to become righteous before God. That's already covered. We read in verse 32, they're already called the saints. That means the holy ones, the righteous ones. They already got that free from Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you are clothed in his righteousness. You are wearing an unremovable suit of forgiveness, and you have Jesus' resume having, having you know, as if, as if you yourself had, had fed the 5,000, as if you yourself had raised Lazarus from the dead, as if you yourself had always done what pleased the Father because you're united to Jesus Christ, who is all of that and more. So they're not doing this to make themselves righteous in the presence of God. That's not this. This is something that Jesus is doing through his people. We read that the church was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of Jesus. They're praying to a God we see who actually listens to their prayers. Jesus was doing this ministry through them, we read. Jesus was their message, not, not, not his plan or his program, but his person. This Jesus wasn't a prophet pointing the way. He was the way to which the prophets point. We read he's the Son of God in verse 20. We read he's the Christ in verse 22. They preached the name of Jesus in verse 27. That means they preached his person. Here is Jesus Christ, risen and ascended, standing before the church, bow down before him, call upon him. He will save you. He will rescue you. He will heal you. Call on his name because he's real. It's not make-believe. They preached his person. That's what it means when they preach the name of Jesus. One friend of mine says this, we have to become convinced that love has to be a person to us before it can be a verb. And until you see Jesus as the person of love who has loved you and washed you and made you clean and rescued you, until you see that he's the one who came to stay in your house while you were being shunned, until you're the one that can see that he's the one who clothed you just as Tabitha had clothed those women, until you see that he was a friend to you when you were friendless, you will not have the strength to persevere in the hard work of being a friend of the friendless. Our denomination's book of church order defines a deacon as a friend to the friendless. I see how these men take care of so many people, help so many people, hear so many people's stories. I see the deaconesses doing so much of the same thing and mobilizing the church to care for people. Friends, that is the ministry of Jesus. That is a holy calling. That is the purpose of Christ, who himself came to be our friend. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends, Jesus says, and I have called you my friend. Friends, Jesus 
friend to the friendless, Jesus, who loved us for the joy set before him, scorning the shame of the cross, he loved us. When you were, ta- when you were a, a tanner named Simon, shamed and shunned and rejected and avoided, Jesus came to your house. When you were drowning under the weight of sin and isolation from God, Jesus dove in and rescued you. He rescued you at the cost of his own life because he is a friend to the friendless. The force of the impact tore through the ship. They knew their shipmates would never survive. It was a few years back when the Navy destroyer, the USS Fitzgerald, collided with a Philippine-flagged container ship 56 miles off the coast of Japan. The brunt of the impact hit below deck, below the waterline. We have a photograph of that damaged section of, of the boat. Could we get that slide if we've got it there? Maybe we don't have that. Well, yeah. The hole was massive, and it was below the waterline. And when you look at this huge hole in the side of a ship, you have to understand it was below the waterline, and on the other side of that hole were the sleeping bay for all of the crew. And it was nighttime, and they were mostly down there asleep. You could see the waterline, and, and 200 sailors right behind it who were drowning. Many of them were just teenagers, 18, 19 years old. But one older sailor, 37-year-old, Officer Gary Reen, he called them his kids. Gary never had kids of his own, but when the impact of the crash shook the Fitzgerald, Gary Reen was one of the first to jump down into the flooding section of that vessel, pulling young men out of bed, waking them up, alerting them, shaking them awake as the waters were rising in that sleeping berth. Reem stayed below, pulling young sailors out of the water and pulling, pushing, and dragging them up deck to safety. You can imagine he's hauling another drowning sailor up through the hatch. The look on his face as the officers above tell him, that's the last one. We're going we're gonna to go down. We've got to, we've got to lock down the ship. We've got to close up. We can't do it anymore. And he goes down and gets another and shoves him up just in time. And then he goes down to get another when the captain gives the order, seal the deck. And he drowns, saving the lives of the people that he called his kids. Gary Ream drowned. Accounts state that he saved at least 20 of his shipmates who would have died, 20 of his kids, and he gave his life to save them. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. When you were in the berth and you were drowning and you were facing certain destruction, Jesus dove in and he dragged you out of there and he died saving us because he is a friend to the friendless. He died for his friends. Let's pray.